So my name's Tony. Uh, I serve here at Wellspring. Have the privilege of being here. Just so grateful to be with you guys this morning. Uh, we're journeying through the Gospel of John. If you are in elementary school and you want to hang out with some other elementary schoolers, Daniel's back there. Uh, they're gonna, you guys are going to hang out together over in the other building. Uh, feel free to hang with them. With that said, today we're going to be continuing our journey through John. We've been in John since May with a few uh, little breaks here and there. We're in chapter 9 today. And the way chapter 9 functions is it's kind of this, it's one story that sort of slowly unfolds. And it seemed to work better as one sermon rather than three. But it's a little bit longer chunk of text. So I want to invite a couple people to help me read up here. So maybe... Matt, Molly, Catherine, you guys want to come up? They're going to read through uh, the chapter. Read. It won't be um, So just listen to the text uh, being read. It won't be projected. So just maybe close your eyes or do whatever is comfortable. Just sort of take the story in. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no, work, no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and washed my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is blind. Give him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. 
Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, so that the and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and that those who will see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. Thank you, guys. That was great. So you can see why... Let me give them a round of applause real quick. So you can see why I didn't want to read that whole thing. Otherwise, I'd be up here for like three hours. Give you a little break voice-wise. So there's really, I feel like there's a story in five parts. So I'm going to sort of break it up a little as we go through. So part one, right, this is the healing. It begins with a question. So the disciples are walking by this guy who's on the side of the road and he cannot see. And they ask Jesus, so tell me, tell me the origin story of this guy's suffering. Who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? And rather than saying, you know, sort of living into this reality, Jesus says something interesting, three or four. He says this, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. So Jesus tells the disciples really clearly, hey, this isn't connected to this man's sin or his parents, right? His current suffering, he shifts the focus correlated to what he did or what his parents did. Rather, he shifts the focus of the conversation away from, hey, how did this guy get blind? To, okay, what does it look like? Who is God about? What is he up to in the world? Right? He says, oh yeah, what does God want to do? God wants to bring hope and healing. So in the midst of suffering, in the midst of evil, it's less about, hey, we're going to mine the depths and figure out how it happened, and more about, so what is God doing about it? And he says, hey, God is on the move trying to alleviate this pain, suffering, and evil. And he does something interesting, verse 4. He says this, we must do the works of him who sent me. He doesn't say, hey, I am the only one out there who's bringing this hope and healing. He says, we are. He actually includes the disciples in this mission of bringing, right, the healing and hope of God to this man and to the world. 
It's interesting, right? Jesus doesn't get into this long, drawn-out conversation about evil, the origin of pain. He invites the disciples to be a part of the work of God in the world. N.T. Wright has this quote. He says this, We have to stop thinking of the world as a kind of moral slot machine, where people put in a coin, a good act, say, or an evil one, and get out a particular result, a reward, or his sins. In particular, you can't stretch the point back to a previous life, or to someone else's sins. No, something much stranger, at once more mysterious and more hopeful, is going on. The chaos and misery of this present world is, it seems, the raw material out of which the loving, wise, and just God is making his new creation. Right? It's actually in the brokenness, in the evil, in the stuff that seems to be the most hopeless that God comes and brings life. After this, Jesus says this, verse 4 and 5, night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, I think when you first hear this statement, you sort of wonder, or at least I did, like, wait, so is Jesus only saying he's like a temporary light, like a night light at dark, and then you sort of turn it off, you know? Is that what he's saying? That he's only the light of the world while he's sort of embodied, while the Son of God has taken on human flesh? Is he only the light of the world then? I don't think so. I think what John is specifically saying is that Jesus has taken on human flesh. And for this season, he's doing a particular thing as the light of the world. But it's not like Jesus stops being the light of the world when he is crucified and ascends and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's emphasizing a specific phase of Jesus' ministry. Guy. That's right. Jesus does something. He doesn't just then walk by this guy. He doesn't even wait for the guy to invite him. He actually initiates with this blind man. And then for us, you know, it'd be fun if the elementary school kids were in here because they'd be like, oh, he spit on him, you know. Uh, But in the first century, right, saliva is connected to healing. So no one in the crowd would have been like, oh, disgusting. You know, no one would have done that. Uh, And then the mud piece, uh, there's a lot of theories about it. One theory is that this is sort of an echo back to the creation story. Right? So God makes Adam, Adamah. Adamah is earth in Hebrew. He makes Adam out of earth, right? So he takes mud, combines it with saliva, and puts it on the guy's eye, and then says, hey, go to this pool, right? The pool of Siloam. Now, one of the things that's interesting here, right, is this word actually means scent. It also happens to be the pool where Jesus healed the crippled man, the man who could not walk, It's the same pool where he healed him on the Sabbath in chapter 5. Right? So there's this echo back. What does Jesus say to the guy? Right? This is the same, actually, it's the same pool that in the Feast of Tabernacles, they would also grab the water and then go up and pour it on the altar. Right? So everyone's watching. Everyone says, Jesus, or watching the priest as he pours the water on the altar. And as he's saying that, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow out of him. Right? It's that same pool. Right? So the man is healed as he is sent to this pool. The light of the world, Jesus has healed him. Right? The one out of whom rivers of living water flows. Now, this brings us to now part two of the story. And this is sort of the questioning of the neighbors. So you have healing, part two, questioning of the neighbors. So you have the man healed, he walks home, and the neighbors around him are confused. 
So this is sort of that, you know, that phrase, like you go to the spa or something, you're like, oh, I just feel like a new person. Uh, It's sort of like that in real life. I remember I used to work in group homes. So day one, someone would show up maybe out of juvenile hall and they were addicted to meth or just coming out of it. And then they would be like, you'd watch over a couple months as this person ate and exercised and was in a safe place. And it was like, whoa, they're a totally different person. So it's not that this guy can just see, right? Because if he could just see, they might be able to say, obviously that's Joe or that's Bob, but it's a more full transformation. It sounds like he goes from maybe depressed and then he kind of walks with a buoyancy. So there's like some sort of transformation happening such that his neighbors are like, it's pretty interesting. I'm not sure it's him. It's pretty interesting though, because the neighbors ask him what happened. And this is what the man says, verse 11. The man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. So one of the things I love about this is he just says what happened. He simply tells his story. And then when they ask, but where is Jesus? He's like, I don't know. The dude feels no pressure to be like, uh, I think he's here, you know. He's like, he's this witness of what Jesus has done, and all he does is tell his story and answer things as best as he can. Now, for some reason, likely because the neighbors are like, this is incredible, they take him to the Pharisees. Because I think they want to share like, whoa, look at what has happened. So they bring him to the Pharisees. Now, this is kind of where it gets interesting in my opinion, right? Because the Pharisees ask him again, so what happened? He explains but the Pharisees have a little different perspective, right? Because they're, they're, the, they're kind of religious leaders. So they're trying to pay attention to, you know, what really happened. They're paying attention to whether Jesus crossed any lines, right? So they notice in particular the healing happens on the Sabbath. Now in later Jewish documents, what you'll see is there are 39 different prohibitions. So there's to work on the Sabbath. One of those is kneading, right? Like you knead dough. So there's some theologians that wonder, like, maybe because Jesus needed mud, right? It's like, oh, you broke the Sabbath, right? Who knows? But clearly they focus on it. Possibly this is what upsets them, but we know already they're not neutral, right? They've already been trying to kill him. And in chapter 5, right, they've already seen uh, Jesus heal someone. And then after that, right, they're pretty upset about him. But despite that, despite this posture against Jesus, there's still like some debate. Well, could a sinner really do this? If he wasn't with God, could he really do this? So then they they do, right? They're like, well, we can't solve it. So what do they do? They turn back to the guy. They're like, so what do you think? And he's like, he's a prophet. Now, the Pharisees aren't really content with this answer. So what do they do? They call his parents. How do you feel about that? You're like telling, this is what happened. Like, get his parents. Now, that means that he's likely at least 13, you know, because eventually in a minute we'll see that they're like, he's an adult. So it means he's at least 13, but he probably seems youngish because they're calling in his parents to validate his testimony. Now, this might feel shady to us in our culture uh, because what happens is the Jewish leaders had decided that anyone, this is verse 22, anyone that had acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's not us. We, we sort of think, well, just find a new church, like find a new synagogue. That's not exactly how it worked. So the synagogue is the center of life. If you're put out of the synagogue, you are put out of the social fabric of the community. 
right? So they're really tentative about how they answer the Pharisees' questions. And this is why they kind of sidestep and they're like, ask him, he's an adult. They'll answer factual questions about who he is, whether it's their son, those kind of things, but how it happened. One, they weren't there. And two, they're afraid. They're afraid that if they sort of step out of line, they're going to be kicked out of the synagogue, which is a big, big deal. So then we get back to the Pharisees and they invite the man back, right? So now we're in another sort of phase. So you have healing, questioning of neighbors, go to the Pharisees, the Pharisees question the man, then they invite his parents, then they invite him back and they ask him, all right, so what happened? And this is where it gets pretty, I think, I don't know, they sort of set him up, right? They say this, so give glory to God. But Jesus is a sinner. So they're sort of like, give glory to God, but you know that Jesus is a sinner, so what are you going to do? He says, verse 25, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Right? Jesus doesn't get into this argument about who Jesus is. It's pretty interesting. He's not like, well, let's, let's debate. He doesn't. He sidesteps sort of the meat of the argument and he simply shares his story. I was blind, now I see. But he is pretty courageous. Even though he does sidestep a little bit, he is pretty courageous. I think he knows from his parents that he could be kicked out of the synagogue. But despite that, he still identifies with Jesus. He doesn't dismiss his experience Now, it's unclear what the man's motivation for what happens next, but he has this great quote. He's like, so you guys, you're asking a lot of questions. Like, do you want to be his disciples too? And it's like, is that tongue in cheek? Is that like innocent? I'm not sure, but it really makes them mad, right? They sort of insult him and they say something that's pretty important. They're like, we are descendants or disciples of Moses, Now, if you know your Hebrew Bible, you know that Moses uh, has a few different sort of really important points in the story. One is he's central to the people of God trapped in slavery in Egypt, getting towards freedom, right? He partners with God, right? So that they then, he gets the Ten Commandments and the law, passes them on to the Hebrew people, right? So that they then have like a code of ethics, a way of living, right? So in the first century, he's considered the greatest of the prophets, But here's the twist. Moses wasn't simply a character in the Hebrew Bible who handed over the law. If you actually go back into the first century, you'll know there's an assumption that Moses talked about a day when a new Moses would come. This new person would come, like him, a prophet, who would initiate a new exodus. Just as Moses had done, there would be like a new Moses that he talked about and the prophets talked about. They would initiate this new exodus, this way that God was going to remove people not from oppression in Egypt, but from the power of sin. And actually, we see this happening in the Gospel of John. If you go back to the first chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus is calling disciples. And this is what we see. This is chapter 1, verse 45. Philip finds Nathanael and he tells him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, right? 
in the first century, people that don't even know what Jesus is really going to do over the next nine chapters, they're already saying, we have found the way as Jesus heals them, is talked about. And later, when we get into chapter 5, right, as Jesus heals the man who cannot walk on the Sabbath, Jesus says to the crowd in verse 45, he says this, but do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Right? So for Jesus and for John to be a disciple of Moses, a true disciple of Moses, is to be a disciple of Jesus because Moses was pointing to Jesus in his writings. N.T. Wright again. Just as Moses shocked the magicians of Egypt by doing things they couldn't copy, Jesus is now shocking the world of his day by doing things for which the only explanation is that God is powerfully at work. And yet, this is the very conclusion that they resist. Right? They kick the man out. They insult him. They say, you're a sinner from birth, right? Which kind of echoes back to who sinned? Right, the initial disciples question, which then brings us to part five of the story. So the man has been kicked out, but Jesus is in store for him. Is he kicked out of the synagogue? He's kind of on his own, but Jesus doesn't leave him there. Just as he initiated with the man to heal him at the beginning, so he follows up with him after he's been thrown out by the Pharisees. When he finds him, he says this to him. He says, do you believe in the son of man? Now, again, this is an echo back to Daniel, who's a prophet, but also to Moses, this figure, the son of man who would come into earthly existence and establish the kingdom of God, right? The guy who would be like Moses and initiate a new exodus, establishing the kingdom. He's like, do you believe in him? And the guy's like, I kind of want to, but who is he, you know? And Jesus is like, I am he. Verse 38, this is how the man replies. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Now, if you think about it, like just a little bit ago, we thought he was a prophet. Now he calls him Lord, God, the Messiah. And this word worship is an interesting one in Greek. Kuneo is this sort of uh, phrase to kiss, actually, is the verb. So a lot of people think that when it says worshiped, it touches into a Near Eastern practice that if you were going to worship a god or a supernatural being, what you do in the worship is you fall at your feet their feet, and you kiss their feet as a sign of the dirt. So possibly this guy has fallen on his feet and he's kissing the dirty feet of Jesus. Now on one level, this feels like the fitting end of the story. Like it feels like, okay, it should be chapter 10. And then Jesus says something. He says this in verse 39. For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those, those who, will, who see will become blind. And there's these Pharisees that are, I guess, are nearby. They like are eavesdropping. And they're like, what? Are we blind too? And then Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Right? So you have this, this guy is worshiping him now. You have Pharisees overhearing him, sort of eavesdropping. 
I think there's two things to say before we get into like practical implications. First is a big picture of like the literary flow of chapter 9. So it begins with these disciples saying, who is, who sinned? Clearly this guy sinned or his parents did, right? You get midway through the chapter. Now the Pharisees are calling Jesus. They're like, hey, glorify God. But Jesus is a sinner. And now as we get to the end of the chapter, who becomes the sinner? Right? The Pharisees do. So there's this flow between sight and sinning. Who, the blind man and spiritually blind. The end, the people who think they see, who physically can see, are spiritually blind. Which sort of begs the question, what does it even mean to be a sinner in this passage? I think textually, maybe the simplest way to say it is, those who do not perceive the light-giving presence of Jesus are determined to be sinners in this text. Right? That if they can't see that God is working through Jesus to bring light into the world, that that is sin on some level. Sin is not as much about behavior. It's not as much about whether you broke one of the Ten Commandments as it is about recognizing the person of Jesus and aligning your life with his light. N.T. Wright again. Jesus' presence divides the world into those who come into the light and allow it to change, heal, and direct their lives and those who don't. That's chapter 9. There's all these moving pieces. So how do we sort of digest it and like actually make it a part of our life today? Two things I want to highlight. The first is simply the interplay between story and witness. Right? We live in a world in the 21st century, particularly on the West Coast, uh, where we're caught in this tricky moment culturally. Right? Our belief is undermined from all of these angles. Connection to God, the forces that are trying to undermine our conviction, our sense of connection to God. There's this focus on authenticity in our culture, but also this undermining of any kind of universal or grand narratives that says, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, not just for me, but for the world. So it often can feel tricky to be a person of faith. Like, what do you do with your faith? How do you communicate about it? I think this passage is actually a really powerful example because of that. I love this guy's posture, right? He simply tells his story. He's brought into all these environments. Some are more neutral, some are more hostile. What does he do? This is how Jesus met me. This is what Jesus did. And when he doesn't know the answer, what does he say? I don't know. He does it twice. Where is Jesus? I don't know. Jesus is a sinner. I'm not really sure about the sinner thing, but this is what he did. I was blind and now I see. He owns his story. He embraces it, but he also doesn't come, o- come across super like hypocritical or arrogant. He just owns what God has done and he shares it. He's open about it. He's authentic. Now, I think in all likelihood, if we are apprentices of Jesus in the 21st century, on the West Coast, on the peninsula, we'd be people that are hard in times when we are trying to just be honest about who we are and what we believe. There are going to be people that are hardened against our belief system. Like, I just think that is going to be the case. It's not going to be every day, but every every so often you're going to run into a Pharisee who's like, this is the way it's supposed to be, and you broke, you know, you're going to get kicked out of the synagogue. And I think we feel a little bit of that pressure. 
This is my last N.T. Wright quote, and it's not going to be projected, but it's a good one, so pay attention. He says this, Being a Christian is often confusing. People try and interpret your experience for you or put you in this or that category to label you. Often this is so that they needn't take you quite seriously. What you must do is stick to what you know. I used to be blind. Now I see. It may be costly, but paying that cost is better than the still more costly route of denying what, in Christ Jesus, God has truly done for you. What N.T. Wright does, I think, in a really helpful way, is he creates a says, he basically says, there's a cost either way. There's a cost of being authentic about what we believe, think, how God has worked in our lives, and there's a cost to not. There's a, in this text, is stuffing it. And what I think the major cost that I see in this text is that Jesus includes the disciples to be on mission with him, right? Because God's heart beats with love for the world, right? God wants to reveal himself as light to the world. He invites us to be a part of that process. Now, I want you to imagine a first century disciple. Jesus calls them to be with himself, to be on mission with him. And one of the people, one of his disciples is like, you know what? Jesus, I love our conversations in the morning. I just do. I love being with you in the morning, but I'm not sure I want to go out with you during the day. So how about this, Jesus? I'll hang out with you tomorrow morning. I'll set aside a half an hour. Come back. Let's hang out. Imagine the disconnection they have from all the amazing things that God does through them during the day. Right? All the other disciples are out there. They're seeing Jesus heal. They're seeing Jesus reveal himself. They're seeing, they're hearing Jesus' teaching during the day. And this one guy who's sitting back, he's like, how'd it go? Imagine the disconnection he would have from the person of Jesus, from what he cares about in the world. And I think when we put ourselves on the sideline of God's mission, when we, when we say, I don't want to be a witness, we actually disconnect ourselves from the heart of God, which beats for the world. There's two things I want to say here. I'm like, oh, if I'm going to be honest, pressure to be like the answer man, right? It's like, you feel this pressure of like, oh, if I'm going to be honest about sort of God's work in my life, I feel like I need to answer every question. But that's not what we see in this text. What we see is this guy is a faithful presence of what God has done. That's it. And it's progressive. He calls him a prophet. He later worships him as Lord. At each stage, he simply shares what he knows. There's something really beautiful about that. Depressurizing. Now, I think some of us, you know, when you, maybe you've heard of evangelism talked about, you've heard about these things, and you're sort of like, well, you know, I was actually talking to someone this morning. They're like, yeah, I grew up in the church. I don't have this, like, amazing conversion story. I think some of us feel that. It's like, I grew up in the church. I wasn't, like, a meth addict, and then I got better, and it's like everyone can see, like, whoa, the power of God at work in this person's life, you know? And so we're like, yeah, I don't have anything to share. I think that's totally missing the point. I think the question for you is, why do you love Jesus? That becomes your witness. That becomes your testimony. It's not some abstract, you need to know every proof in human existence. You need to know the origin of suffering. You need to know why the church has done horrible things throughout history. 
crisp, clear, perfect defense. It's like, why do you love Jesus? That's where you start. One of the things that uh, I was reminded of, a a story that came to mind as I was thinking about this message was um, when Jeannie and I moved, when our family moved up to Washington, I don't know, five years ago, I guess it is. It was a really, really hard season when we left. There had been some death in the family. It just was a kind of a brutal season. And for Jeannie in particular, she felt like, you know, this pressure. She just felt like, I just, if I leave, I just want to kind of do it on my own. It was vulnerable. She didn't want to let people in. And she felt like God was saying to her, just say yes. When you go up there, if someone offers to serve you, just say yes. If someone invites you into their home, just say yes. Even though that's not what she wanted to do. But by just saying yes, she saw God moving in cool ways to care and love her and surround her in ways that she was not emotional, she was kind of resistant to. But it became this beautiful testimony of the provision of God. And all she did was just say yes. And I think actually for us, as we think about what does it look like to participate in God's mission in the world? I think for us, I think my invitation to you is, as you wake up in the day, and God invites you into relationships, into your workplace, into different places, just out in front of people to the Spirit's lead. You're going to be brought in front of people that are struggling. Just say yes to being the faithful presence of Jesus in that place. Maybe God will use you in a beautiful way. It might be through hospitality. It might be through sharing the gifts and resources you have. It might be through telling the story of God's faithfulness in your life. But my challenge and my invitation to you is don't wake up in the morning thinking, I'm going to hang out with Jesus for 20 minutes and then I'm going to do my own thing. God is on the move in the world and he invites us to be a part of that. And my invitation, my challenge to you is say yes. There are going to be moments this week where God provides this banquet of opportunity, say yes. Now, this is the last thing I want to share is simply about sort of, there's this theme in this text about light and sight. And it touches on all kinds of sort of practical elements in our life, right? There's about the the power of Jesus to bring healing. It's about the perceptions of sin. And what is sin? What does it mean for Jesus to be the light of the world, right? There's judgmentalness. There's all kinds of themes going around there. But I think I want to just land this morning that this text is primarily, and even at its deepest, really about Jesus being the light of the world. It is about God offering himself to a blind man to bring sight to his eyes. It is about God offering himself to the world and to us to bring light into our present darkness. Now, I think there's two different specific audiences here. I think one is like, I think for some of us, you know, we're checking out God in this place, but you've never really chosen like, you know what? I want Jesus. You know, maybe you're sort of in this, you're midway through the process. You're like, yeah, he's a prophet. He's a good teacher. And I think Jesus is inviting you, if you're in that space, to say, what would it look like for you to worship him as Lord? I think there's others of us here who there's probably areas of our life that are not totally submitted to the light of God. I had this picture as I was sort of writing this about, you know, a house. 
And there's areas of the house that have lights, and it's very illuminated. It's neat and tidy. Guests come in. And then there's like a room or two. It's like they're deadbolted. They're shut. The, the sort of the, you know, the, the, what are those things called? Blinds? The blinds are drawn, and it's dark. And my experience is that most of us have a room in our life. We don't want to see where the door is shut and the blinds are drawn. And we, we don't want to see it. Maybe it's a place of pain. Maybe it's a place of struggle. But we don't want to let God in to be the light in that place. And we're not even sure we want to let others or even go back to it ourselves. And I think there's a challenge this morning to let God be the light of that place too. Now, for some of you, you'll be here and you're like, I know the room. Like, I think about that room all the time. Uh, you know what that is. And maybe you even have a sense of what it looks like to let the light in there. I think there's others of us that are like, oh, I'm not sure what that would be. And that's okay too. I would have two specific invitations to you. One is this. Ask a few people in your life about your blind spots. Like, we all need, when I was playing high school football, uh, there was this play where uh, it's called the crackback block, where the wide receiver would just run as fast as he could and just nail the linebacker. Um, and the idea was the DB, the defensive back, was supposed to say, crackback, crackback. And if he didn't call the crack, what happens? The linebacker just gets annihilated. He gets blindsided. I think sometimes we live these isolated Christian lives and we don't have anyone in our life saying, it's a crack. I would invite you to look out so we just get nailed. I would invite you. I think you need, we all need two or three people that are speaking into the blind spots in our life. So if you're wondering, I don't really know what the blind spots are. This is a great opportunity. Ask two people in your life that you trust. Hey, what are two or three areas in my life that I could be growing in? Two, I would say, create space not just to talk to God, but to actually listen to the speaking voice of God. Sometimes we're just sort of like, we go through our little thing rather than actually taking time. God, is there an area or two of my life that you want me to be growing in? Maybe the speaking voice of God would actually shape your journey, provide light to your steps. <laughs> that was awesome. As we transition into worship, um, to help us kind of recenter, invite the worship team on, up, uh, as we center into uh, the person of Jesus and worship, I just want to have us celebrate communion together to remind us of what God has done for us and to recenter our lives on Jesus again this Sunday. Just because our hearts can be so wandering. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with some friends at a table and he grabbed some bread and he broke it. And he said to them, this is my body. that is broken for you. Take and eat. And he took some wine and grabbed it. And he said, this wine is my blood that is shed for you and for all that sins may be forgiven.
And Jesus would go on early that morning to die for them. And he gave us this practice to remember the extent of his love for us. And he went and died for the Pharisees who tried to kill him. He died for his disciples that were following him. And today he died for you and he died for me that we may be forgiven. That the power of sin may be broken in our lives. That we may experience the freedom that God promises.